Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. So this week, we're jumping into a case that you may have been following for about three years now. And just recently, it cycled back into the news. We want to give you an extra content warning because this episode contains discussions of violence against a child, which may be triggering or disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Gannon Stauk was an 11-year-old boy who lived with his father, stepmother, sister, and stepsister in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Well, on January 27, 2020, Gannon was reported missing by his stepmother, Letitia Stauk, who claimed he has gone to a friend's house and never returned. Within days, a massive search operation was launched to find Gannon, involving law enforcement, the National Guard, and volunteers from the surrounding community. This search lasted for several weeks, and it covered large areas— Well, all hope was lost when Gannon's remains were found several states away in a rural area of Florida. Within days of the discovery of his body, his stepmother, Letitia Stauk, was arrested and charged with multiple crimes, including first-degree murder. So we're going to look over some of the details that happened on the evening of January 27, 2020 when 37-year-old Letitia Stauk went searching for her 11-year-old stepson, Gannon Stauk. He was out playing with his friends that day and allegedly hadn't returned. His stepmother immediately began searching for Gannon. It was unusual for Gannon not to follow the rules and return on time, especially because earlier that day, he had been sick. So sick that he stayed home from school that day with a stomachache. Letitia sent a photo of Gannon sleeping in his bed that morning to her husband, Gannon's father, Al Stock, and he was out of state conducting training drills in Oklahoma with the National Guard. Al was immediately worried when Letitia couldn't find Gannon because he was too far away to do anything to help. He also knew that Letitia was upset that day with Gannon. The night before, there had been some problems with Gannon when a candle had allegedly caused a small fire and minor carpet damage in the basement. Letitia was enraged over the accident and videotaped Gannon on the phone while she interrogated him. 
While Gannon was concerned about his burns, Letitia was only concerned about the damage to the carpet. Each time Gannon tried to speak, she would cut him off to control the narrative. This was a video to show her husband how badly his kid was behaving. In the video, Letitia asked Gannon to pinky swear that he hadn't done it on purpose. A frightened and terrified Gannon, in tears, promised that he was sorry and hadn't done it maliciously. To drive home the importance of Gannon telling her the truth, Letitia told him a series of lies. Lying is something that Letitia is really good at, which we will get into in a few minutes. But that night, she told Gannon that they might lose their home because of the small candle fire and smoke damage. She told Gannon that they would have to sell their couch and maybe some of his toys so that the lady who owned their home wouldn't kick them out. Days later, police would be unable to locate any fire or carpet damage caused by this candle. So how did Gannon really get those burns on his hands? As soon as Al heard his son was missing, he instructed Letitia to call the police, which she did and reported Gannon as a runaway. She explained to the officers that Gannon had been in a little trouble and it was possible that he was just scared and was too worried to come home. Now, when an 11-year-old boy goes missing, it's always an immediate cause for concern with law enforcement. The Colorado Spring Police Department sent an officer out right away to take a report and help look for Gannon. The officer started by looking throughout the entire house with Letitia following closely behind him. They began looking in the basement where Gannon slept. They looked in the storage closet, in the garbage, and the officer even looked inside Letitia's car. His body cam footage showed that Letitia had backed her car into the garage, something police would later learn was an unusual thing for her to do. When the officer looked inside the car, all he noticed was a suitcase in the rear storage compartment, but no sign of Gannon. When the officer asked for the names of Gannon's friends, Letitia couldn't provide any. When the officer asked for the addresses of his friends' homes, Letitia couldn't provide any. When the officer asked Letitia to show him which house she checked for Gannon, again, Letitia couldn't remember. When she was asked for the names of the parents, again, you guessed it, she just couldn't remember their names. Within hours, Gannon's disappearance became a national story, and Letitia's odd behavior was naturally troublesome for law enforcement. Gannon's mother, who lived out of state, came to Colorado to help look for her son, and she and Al became united in their search for Gannon. I'm Landon Hyatt, Gannon's mom, and I encourage you guys, I know many of you mothers and fathers, I encourage you just to seek, find him. I'm so thankful for all the outpouring help that this case has brought. My son is a very loving kid, he wouldn't want harm on anybody at all. And it's so hard to just think, why is this happening to him? I have no clue, but my kid deserves to come home. My kid has a purpose. My kid has a life. And it's important to me, and it's important to everybody that's standing in this room. Gannon, Bubba, little man, mommy's hero, wherever you're at, mommy and daddy's here. We're begging and pleading for you to come home. I know that's your biggest wish, is to see mommy and daddy standing here. We're here, Bubba. We're here for you. 
and I can't wait till you're found because I have hope that you are going to be found. You are my hero. You are the reason why I have life. He's so special to me. You can hear the fear and terror in Landon's voice when she talks about finding her son, Gannon. You can also hear the hope in her voice, hoping that by some miracle of miracles, Gannon will come back to her. For reasons we don't know, Gannon's father and stepmother had full custody of both Gannon and his younger sister, eight-year-old Lena. They also shared the home with Letitia's daughter from another relationship, 17-year-old Harley Hunt. The things we know about Letitia so far are that she is a great liar and almost immediately she stopped cooperating with authorities. But the thing that upset her the most was that Gannon's mom was now living in her home while she was displaced. At this time, Letitia may not have been speaking to the police, but she was speaking to the press. I am Tisha Stout, which is Gannon's stepmother. Uh, you've been a part of the investigation since the very first time you were the last person to see him. Is that right? Correct. Uh, what, what did you see when you last saw him? Well, I'm not allowed to talk about anything with the case. I would more so be willing to talk about how the community needs to have faith and continue to work together and not make these false accusations, like the things that have been said that I've disappeared from the community. I haven't been there to help, but there's lots of reasons behind that. Uh, reasons like death threats, right? Right. Death threats are one of them. My family's getting lots of death threats. We counted over 20-some death threats already. Um, two, my husband's ex-wife is living in our home. And of course, I'm not coming home to do these things and to help with the family when I was kind of like told I couldn't. Um, and then many other things that happened with the El Paso County Police Department, you know, and in doing the investigation, I was told I wasn't complying. And uh, could I elaborate on that? Please do. Yes. So I asked for an attorney during the interview uh, and I was denied that by them. I was held because they were blocking the door and I was told I couldn't leave and that if I would have touched them, they would have probably, you know, said I still wasn't complying or said I was, you know, trying to run away or something. But during the interview, I asked several times, could I stop the interview? Could I get an attorney? Could I stop the interview? Could I get an attorney? I was denied. I was told I couldn't get nothing to drink. I couldn't go to the bathroom. I mean, it was continuously that my constitutional rights were violated. And that's why you say that they said then you weren't cooperating with the investigation. That's why they said I wasn't cooperating at that time, correct. And why did you ask for an attorney at the time? Well, I asked for an attorney at the time because there was one individual, there was two really good detectives, and so I'm not you know, going to talk bad about detectives, but the tactics they started to get when I would answer questions, they try to, you know, they're detectives, they're supposed to twist, the one main goal is to find Gannon. But during that time, some of those things made me feel uncomfortable the way they were saying things. So I immediately stopped and felt like, felt like an attorney would help me with some of the vocabulary and things like that that I needed help with and understanding some of the things that they were asking. I'm going to shift gears to what has been In that clip, she sounds so lovely, doesn't she? Police were immediately interested in speaking with Letitia again. In a text exchange, Detective Bethel asked Letitia to please come into the station and speak with him. He told her that he wanted her assistance in finding Gannon. Letitia responded by text telling him, quote, What do you want from me? Because I have nothing. One of your very own leaked to me what you guys were doing. I did nothing and I'm being set up. I'm not really even sure other than being told by another blue with El Paso. 
I was told I couldn't go home to sleep, and on top of that, men were sent to a home with a minor female, and she was forced to stay there, not even leave for food. Every conversation that said, even at this moment, I can hear inside. What do you want from me? Unquote. For starters, I think they wanted a coherent exchange of words, and that clearly wasn't it. When she refers to being told by another blue, she is referring to a police officer who allegedly leaked to her that the police were trying to set her up for Gannon's disappearance. She had other conspiracy theories, too, that Gannon's mother had taken him and was hiding him. According to Letitia's Google search history, she didn't think much of Gannon and Lena's mother. She held resentment for the woman whose children she was raising. She also had seething rage and jealousy towards Gannon's mother. Some of her internet searches gave a glimpse into the mind of a resentful stepmother who felt trapped and unappreciated. In several searches, it was clear that she was looking for a new husband, and she wanted one without any children. Some of the searches were out to find a new husband, like how to find real military singles, and find me a rich guy who wants me to take care of his kids. But other searches indicated how Letitia felt about the mother of her stepkids. She conducted a number of searches that said parenting should be one person and not four. I'm overdoing all the work for my stepkids and their mom doesn't help. If you aren't involved in your kids' life, you are shitty. My husband's ex-wife does nothing for her kids. I wonder if my husband's ex is sending me a card since I raised her kids. Letitia's Google search history was basically a roadmap of how she was truly feeling. Her queries sounded more like journal entries than seeking information. Other searches were clearly directed at her failing marriage. They included search phrases like, One day, some people will wish that they treated you differently. Why should my husband choose me over family? And another search was, I sent my husband sexy pictures and he ignored me. Now, those weren't the only concerning searches. We will get into those a little later in this episode. Now, police were finally able to get Letitia to come to the police station to talk to them a few days after Gannon went missing. However, she was almost two hours late for the meeting. Surveillance video would later show that she had been at a car wash thoroughly cleaning out the car. It was the same car, the VW Tiguan that police had originally noticed was backed into the garage with a suitcase in the back cargo area. Police were beginning to suspect that that suitcase held Gannon's body. Police discovered that the day after Gannon went missing, Letitia had her daughter drop off her car to a parking lot where it remained for two days. Without giving any explanation, she rented a Kia Rio for two days. Later, she would tell her husband that she rented the Kia Rio to keep the miles down on her car, which was a leased vehicle, with mile restrictions. But Letitia only put 71 miles on the Kia Rio, so that didn't make any sense. But what made more sense was that Letitia was hiding the vehicle because it held forensic evidence tying her to Gannon's murder. Based on investigative efforts, police believe that Letitia rented this car because she still hadn't disposed of Gannon's body. Based on the GPS data in her car, she likely dumped his body in a rural area off Highway 105 in Douglas County, Colorado, near Palmer Lake. 
Before we get into what Letitia told investigators on the 30th, we're going to discuss what they already knew by the time she arrived and presented story number two regarding Gannon's disappearance. They knew that Gannon was alive on the morning of the 27th. He didn't have stomach problems, but he was injured. There's video surveillance from the neighbor's home where Gannon is seen carefully walking to the car as if he were injured. At one point in the video, he drops something and then hesitates for a moment before picking it up, as if he was in too much pain to bend over and retrieve it. So perhaps at this point, his ribs were hurt or he was injured in some other way. Maybe this was a beating from Letitia. Police knew that the morning Gannon went missing, Letitia took a photo of Gannon in bed, with his regular bedding and his Nintendo Switch game console next to him. Investigators learned from Al that this was Gannon's most prized possession. Letitia texted Al and told him that she would stay home with Gannon and call in sick. That morning, she texted her employer and told them that her stepfather had been killed after being hit by a car and she wouldn't be in for a few days. This is a blatant lie, and this is one of the messages, along with some other clues, that would lead investigators to believe that Gannon's death was premeditated. In the probable cause affidavit, investigators noted that the next day, Letitia conducted a Google search. She was inquiring if Nintendo can remotely locate a Switch game console. Police knew that Gannon was already dead when Lena came home from school that day. Letitia told Lena that Gannon was sick and she couldn't see him. Instead, she told her to go outside and ride her bike. The home surveillance camera confirmed that within 15 minutes of arriving home, Lena was outside riding her bike alone. Earlier that day, while Lena was at school and Harley was at work, Letitia was likely cleaning up blood and evidence of her crime. Later, when police arrived that night, they too would take a photo of Gannon's bed, and the bedding was different than earlier that day. Gannon's bedding, depicted in the picture from 12 hours earlier, couldn't be found, and police found this highly suspicious. From home surveillance and video, police believed they knew approximately when Gannon was murdered. Letitia's phone was locked that morning just before 10 a.m., and it wasn't turned back on or used again until 2.45 in the afternoon. At 10.37 a.m., Gannon's phone texted Harley's phone, telling her that, quote, Tisha left her phone at home. If you need her, text me. Police believe that was Letitia using Gannon's phone. After that message, Letitia drove to Petco, which was located 22 miles from her home. The receipt shows that Letitia completed her purchase at 11.22 a.m. Gannon is not visible on any of the store surveillance cameras. Letitia's whereabouts were also unknown for precisely two hours. At 1.22, Letitia goes back to the same Petco and makes a second purchase. Again, Gannon is not seen on the surveillance video. We know from phone records that at noon, Al texted Gannon's phone to ask how he was feeling. His text stated, quote, Hey, buddy and didn't get an answer for two hours. The response from Gannon's phone was asking to play a video game, to which Al responded, probably not today, buddy. That was likely an exchange he was having with Letitia and not Gannon. 20 minutes later, Gannon's phone conducted a Google search which stated, quote, can my parents find my cell phone if it's turned off? Investigators believed that it was Letitia who conducted that Google search. 
The answer from that Google search stated, quote, the answer to your question depends on what method is being used to track your location. Police believe that Letitia was trying to determine how and where to dispose of Gannon's phone before she murdered him. She wanted to make it look like Gannon had planned to run away and left behind his phone to avoid being easily found. Gannon's phone was found inside his room, and this is one more reason why investigators concluded that Letitia planned Gannon's murder. Surveillance cameras showed that Letitia arrived back at her home at 12.20 in the afternoon using her husband's truck. Gannon can't be seen in the video, but they believe he was killed almost immediately after arriving back home. Even though she had been out without her phone all day, it would be another 30 minutes before Letitia picked up her phone and turned it on again. Based on Letitia's phone usage patterns, she usually spends on average 10.7 hours on social media per day. During that 25-minute period, the home motion detectors went off 10 times, showing someone opening and closing doors to and from the basement, the storage closet, and the garage. That kind of activity is out of the ordinary for those doors. That's the time frame when police believe that Letitia murdered Gannon. We'll get into the manner of his death in a few minutes. As we said earlier, Lena came home from school at 3.15 p.m. According to Lena, Letitia told her to go outside and play. She never said that there's a man inside and to go and call the police. Cameras show Lena outside just 15 minutes later. While Lena was outside is when Letitia began cleaning up blood from Gannon's room and hiding his body in the storage closet, along with his Nintendo Switch and all of his bedding. At 3.55 p.m., Al once again texted Gannon. By this time, Gannon was already dead. At 4.52 p.m., Letitia texted her daughter, Harley, and asked her to go to the store for her. She requested carpet cleaner, vinegar, baking soda, and trash bags. Harley, being a minor, wasn't allowed to speak to the police during this portion of the investigation. But police do not believe that Harley was involved in Gannon's murder. She was at work that day from 8.30 a.m. to 4.15 in the afternoon. However, it's clear that Letitia had no problem involving her daughter after the fact in the cleanup and the hiding of Gannon's body. Harley's involvement in Gannon's murder after the fact was likely against her knowledge or choice. Later, police would learn that Gannon's blood was on the floor of the garage where Letitia backed into the garage the night that she reported Gannon missing. But before we discuss the blood evidence, let's discuss Letitia's interview with the police on the 30th. On the day of the interview, they knew enough to know that Letitia was lying to them. She was the last person to see Gannon alive. And there was blood evidence all over the home that they assumed would come back as belonging to Gannon. Letitia came into the interview with handwritten notes that she wanted to read to the investigators and then leave. She refused to answer any questions and instead, she wanted to read from her statement. Letitia had three days to realize what mistakes she had made and what evidence the police likely found. To get ahead of this, she concocted a ridiculous story that would explain away the blood evidence that police found when Al gave the officers consent to search the home. During the interview, Letitia admitted that Gannon didn't run away. 
She told investigators that because of the smoke and the fire damage from the candle, she had driven around looking for someone to fix the damage. She found a construction worker and hired him on the spot. She gave him her garage code, which supposedly was to explain why he didn't show up on the exterior surveillance cameras. She told officers the man was Hispanic and his name was Eduardo. Eduardo sexually assaulted Leticia and tied up and abused Gannon. And he told her if she reported the abduction, he would harm Gannon. Allegedly, Lena came home in the middle of the assault, which is why Leticia told her that Gannon was sick, so she sent her outside to play. Now, the only problem with this is during this whole time when she was being sexually assaulted, she was actually on her phone asking Google to find her new husband and confessing that she felt like a nanny to her stepchildren. And she also asked Google if there were any programs that offered free money to move out of a bad situation. When Letitia tried to leave the police station, they told her that she was being detained for a mandatory DNA test. They also asked her if she would submit to a sexual assault exam so that they could potentially recover any evidence that would lead to a suspect and ultimately to Gannon's recovery. Not surprisingly, she refused. She began stuffing used tissues down her pants. She didn't want the police to have her DNA. And then Letitia began feigning symptoms of a heart attack and told the officers she couldn't breathe. They called an ambulance, and an officer continued questioning her in the ambulance. But she pretended that she was too ill to respond. While at the hospital again, they tried to get Letitia to submit to a sexual assault exam, which she again refused. After giving her DNA, Letitia left the hospital without consulting the doctors or law enforcement. She called a relative to pick her up, which was likely her aunt. The day after this police interview, Letitia had her aunt rent her a Nissan Altima. This time, the police were one step ahead of her, and they placed a tracking device on the rental car. You can't lie your way out of this one, Letitia. On the 31st of January, she took this vehicle to the same rural area near Palmer Lake along Highway 105. Police believe she was worried that they would find the area based on the GPS data in her VW Tiguan. They had impounded her car that day along with her phone. So she returned to the area where she originally dumped Gannon's body and moved it to a secondary location. Later, police would go out to this area and find a sock that belonged to Gannon, along with a piece of particle board which also had Gannon's blood on it. The particle board matched material from her garage. Investigators believe she placed this in her car in case the suitcase with Gannon's body began to leak, which it did. Despite exhaustive searches and the use of cadaver dogs and over 200 volunteers, including the National Guard, they were unable to locate Gannon's body. Now, early on in the investigation, Al Stock suspected his wife in the disappearance of his son and began cooperating with the police. He began recording phone calls with Letitia and sharing them with the investigators. They knew that on January 27th, she told Al that Gannon had gone to a friend's house and likely didn't return because he ran away. And then on the 29th, just two days later, she told Al she had been held at gunpoint, raped, and Gannon was abducted by her rapist. Letitia also began giving explanations in advance of the police findings. 
For instance, she told Al that when Gannon burned himself, his fingers bled, and that blood got on the walls of his bedroom, in the garage, and even on the bumper of her car. She continually began providing alibis for evidence she assumed that they would find. Her stories continued to evolve in dramatic ways. On February 13th, she told Al that Gannon's skin began to bubble, and Gannon peeled the burns off and wiped the blood on his bedroom wall. This information from Letitia was purely voluntary and without prompting by Al. On February 14th, she shared different versions of what happened to Gannon. She began adding liar details. She told Al that when the police came to their home on the 27th, the intruder slash rapist was still inside their home hiding. According to Letitia, she tried to notify the officer of the intruder's presence, but I guess she was too subtle. That's when she was still pretending the Hispanic construction worker by the name of Eduardo was the abductor and rapist and the intruder. By the very next day, she had even a better story. A black man by the name of Quincy Brown had been in the paper in the days prior as a registered sex offender and pedophile who was on the state's most wanted list. Police believe it was this article that prompted Letitia to alter her story. She sent Al the same mugshot of Quincy Brown she had seen in the paper. She told him that Quincy Brown had come to their home on the 27th and sexually assaulted her and abducted Gannon. She said she knew his name because while he was assaulting her, he just so happened to drop his ID and she memorized his name. That sounds like a super convenient detail. That was story number three. In story number four, Quincy Brown was still the rapist and child abductor, but there were more details on how he got to the home. In this version, Quincy followed Letitia from Petco, broke in, managed to avoid outdoor surveillance cameras, and abducted Gannon. In story number five, Quincy Brown still followed her home, but somehow he got ahead of her, magically knowing where she was going. He was laying in the middle of the road in front of her car, and when she stopped to render aid, he jumped into her car with her and forced her to take him home where he sexually assaulted her and then kidnapped Gannon, taking the boy with him. This story explains why Quincy was never seen on outdoor surveillance cameras and why she backed the car into the garage. It doesn't explain how he left with Gannon without being seen or without transportation. In story number six, Letitia and Gannon were driving near Palmer Lake and Highway 105. They went out there to look at a bike that Letitia wanted to buy for her husband. Gannon was riding the bicycle and fell off and hit his head. This is foreshadowing by Letitia to explain Gannon's injuries in the event that his body was ever located. In this version, Quincy Brown was in the area being driven by another man named Terrence, and he abducted Gannon, taking him with him. I guess she forgot about the alleged sexual assault. Investigators believe there was a reason for this version of events. Around this time, the media began reporting that the police were searching the Palmer Lake area. Letitia knew that her VW Tiguan placed her in this area shortly after Gannon's disappearance, and she had to get in front of the evidence. She was adamant to investigators that they wouldn't locate Gannon, and she was right. By this time, she had already moved his body again. On February 15th, Letitia changed her story again. 
This time, she told her husband that the blood that was found in Gannon's room was a combination of her blood and Gannon's blood mixed together. In this seventh story version, this intruder anally penetrated both her and Gannon with an object. During this abduction, she was also tied up and the intruder slash rapist slash abductor was still hiding inside the home. Yeah, sure he was. Leticia was no longer welcome in her husband's home and had been staying with family. That's when police learned that she had rented a van and driven it along with her 17-year-old daughter, Harley, to Pensacola, Florida. Investigators believe that is when Leticia recovered Gannon's body for a third time and transported his body to Florida. While there, she threw the suitcase that contained Gannon's body over a bridge and into a river as if she were discarding unwanted trash. She probably thought a body from Colorado found in Florida would never be tracked back to her. But she was wrong. Police discovered that on February 18th, Letitia called a phone number associated with a website called fakepolygraph.com. And during that phone call, she explained that she had paid for a fake polygraph result and hadn't received it. The person who answered the phone explained to her that the report had been blocked by management due to the alarming nature of her requested questions. He stated that any request for fake results involving crimes or illegal activities weren't fulfilled. Letitia asked the caller, quote, What do you do now? Just delete it and go on about life and keep the money? The male employee replied, Yes, we do indeed. Letitia said, Okay, I gotcha. Thank you. Goodbye. The questions that Letitia provided for her fake polygraph report were highly disturbing. The questions and answers she requested were, quote, Do you intend to answer these questions regarding your stepson truthfully? Yes. Is your birthday August 4th, 1983? Yes. Did you participate in any way in causing harm to your stepson? No. Did you murder your stepson? No. Once the forensic reports came back from the FBI lab, police had enough evidence to arrest Letitia. They discovered a large red stain on Gannon's bed, which matched his DNA. And when they pulled back the carpet from the corner of his room, the pad and the concrete underneath the carpet were soaked in Gannon's blood. The size of the stain indicated that it would be incompatible with life. There was blood spatter up the wall where Gannon slept. Some of it had been cleaned, but Letitia had missed some of the smaller stains. The spatter indicated a high-velocity injury. The blood from the garage and the storage area also came back as Gannon's blood. Additionally, two of the scrubbers in the dishwasher had carpet fibers that matched the carpet in Gannon's basement bedroom, as well as were positive for Gannon's DNA. As a result of these findings, Letitia was arrested for Gannon's murder on March 2, 2020. Despite not having a body, she was charged with murder in the first degree with a child under the age of 12 and in a position of trust, child abuse resulting in death, tampering with a deceased human body, and tampering with physical evidence. Just 16 days later, Gannon's remains were found in a suitcase in Pace, Florida, right where Letitia had dumped him almost a month earlier. With him was the missing bedding from the photo taken the morning of his murder. 
He was more than 1,000 miles from his home in Colorado. The loss of a child is always heartbreaking, but the gruesome and violent nature of Gannon's death made it all the more horrific and senseless. For almost two years, despite the mountain of evidence against her, Letitia maintained her innocence. She pleaded not guilty, and due to COVID, her case was repeatedly delayed. Letitia was happy to delay it herself with as many legal maneuvers she could think of, including demanding to represent herself. All of that changed on February 11, 2022, when Letitia concocted a new plan to escape justice. She changed her plea from not guilty to not guilty by reason of insanity. This meant that Letitia had to undergo an evaluation to determine her legal sanity or competency. That assessment was completed on August 4, 2022. The findings showed that Letitia was malingering. Malingering is a term used in psychology to describe the deliberate and intentional exaggeration of physical or psychological symptoms. It's often difficult to diagnose because the person may be very convincing and appear to have genuine symptoms. Obviously, the defense was unhappy with this finding and demanded a neutral expert to be allowed to examine Letitia, which they did. But again, the defense was unhappy with the result. In the meantime, the judge set the trial date for Letitia for March 20, 2023, for jury selection and pretrial motions. Just as Letitia's trial began, her own mental health expert provided a report that said Letitia is batshit crazy. Okay, not really, but it did conveniently say that anyone who would kill a sweet and innocent 11-year-old boy for no reason at all was obviously in the middle of a psychiatric break, and her actions alone show that she was in the middle of a deep psychosis. We have a feeling that the jury will disagree. The prosecutor in this case began his opening statements on April 3rd, 2023, and during them, we learned about the horrific way in which Gannon died. As suspected, he had been beaten and burned by Letitia the night before his murder. When police arrived the next day, there was no sign of smoke damage or fire damage from a candle. What investigators believe could have happened is Gannon could have accidentally spilled the candle wax and made a mess that needed to be cleaned. Police said the basement bedroom was clean and had a faintly pleasant odor of coconut. While there is no known motive in this case, there is plenty of speculation based on Letitia's Google searches. She resented raising her stepkids, she felt ignored by her husband, she had a pathological jealousy towards Gannon's mother, and when Gannon spilled the candle wax, she went into a rage. All of her displaced anger was directed towards an innocent 11-year-old boy. While in a rage, she beat him and burned his fingers for playing with a candle. The video of him on her phone showed her carefully controlling the narrative. She interrupted him when he tried to discuss his burns. It's hard to believe an 11-year-old could burn their hands so badly with a candle that they would burn to the point of bleeding. It's a ridiculous story. In the video, she gaslights him into thinking that they would be evicted. The next day, a battered and burned Gannon couldn't go to school like that. Letitia was a teacher's aide, and she knew that the school was a mandatory reporter for child abuse. She also knew her husband, Gannon's father, would be home in two days, so that wouldn't give Gannon enough time to heal, nor would she be able to control the narrative. 
That is when investigators and prosecutors believe she planned the premeditated murder of Gannon. She took a photo of him sleeping in his bed with his Nintendo Switch and sent it off to her husband. Then she ran a series of errands that included going to Petco twice. Both times, Gannon was made to stay in the car. He was covered in bruises. She didn't want him to be seen by anyone. By 2.20, she sent Gannon to his room. While Gannon was in bed, she stabbed him 18 times. Many of the stab wounds were to his hands and forearms. That meant that Gannon fought hard for his life. After stabbing and battling a defenseless 11-year-old boy, Letitia hit him over the head so hard that his skull, according to the prosecutor, cracked like an eggshell. This blow to the head likely incapacitated him and would have led to his death, but Letitia didn't have time to wait for him to die. Next, she took a 9-millimeter handgun and shot it three times at Gannon's head. Twice, she missed, and those bullets went through his pillow and mattress. The third shot hit him in the head and landed in his jawbone. This all doesn't sound like a psychotic break. This sounds like a plan to pretend her stepson ran away from home after getting in trouble for spilling a candle to hide child abuse. Letitia's defense team found an expert witness who is going to get up on the stand and say that Letitia wasn't in her right mind, but the evidence will speak for itself. Letitia was able to craft a plan, move his body multiple times, rent cars, clean up the car and the crime scene, and even try to buy fake polygraph results. Letitia isn't crazy. She is just selfish and evil. The trial is expected to take up to eight weeks, and no one expects a verdict of anything other than guilty. Gannon's senseless and tragic death has devastated a family and an entire community. It highlights the importance of community vigilance, support for child victims of domestic violence, and the need for continued improvement in child protection policies and procedures. We must work together in a society to prevent such tragedies from happening in the future. And this completes this week's episode. I honestly cannot wait to see this evil woman be held accountable. Thank you all so much for keeping up with Crime Salad. And special thanks to Caleb this week for becoming a supporter of our show. And we will see you next week. <laughs>